me pray. Okay. Father, we do thank you for this evening. Thank you, Lord, for your word and for the continuity of all your word. Lord, we thank you that um, you hold all of time and all of history in your hands, Lord, that you are directing all things to your ordained end. And God, I just pray that we would derive great comfort from that, that we would be joyful in that. And Lord, that you would please be helping us to uh, just grow more faithful in our worship of you, Lord, more um, humble when we approach you and come before you. And I pray, Lord, that our assurance, our confidence of what we have in Christ would be truly unwavering and indeed, Lord, would be such a firm foundation that we can build our lives on what Christ has done for us. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so just a couple more weeks of this section left, although I was worried today at work. It was such a busy day. I was worried I was going to have to cancel tonight, but thankfully, oh my. thankfully it didn't have to happen. Oh, yeah, so we're still true. on track. This time of year, they could I know, it's just hit or miss. Say. Every day is, you know, you just never know. But we're here. God is good. Yeah, and so tonight we're going to be talking about the sacrificial system. And so last week we introduced Moses and we talked about the, uh, the, the significance of how Israel was taken from being a people and made into a nation as they were brought out of Egypt and now towards the promised land. And we also spent some time talking about the presence of God and how that was such an important element of the Mosaic Covenant, God's actual literal presence in the tabernacle and among the people. And then, yes, we talked about the Ten Commandments, the law, and how central the law is to the Mosaic Covenant. And we're going to follow on with that tonight, uh, just that discussion about the law. Because last week we talked about how just following after the pattern of Abraham, Israel was promised broadly and corporately the covenant blessings by God's grace. It was guaranteed. But for individuals to enjoy and maintain their blessed status, they had to obey the works of the law. And that reality um, is the occasion for bringing in the sacrificial system. And so tonight, we're going to do a lot of like flipping around. I'm really not used to this. Sorry, no, no, it's fine. No, I'm just kidding. Um, We're going to do some flipping around uh, tonight, look at a few different sections of scripture. But let's start off with Exodus chapter 24. We're going to read verses 3 to 11. And so this is after the initial giving of the law, the Ten Commandments, and some of the, some of the case law, some of the ceremonial law. And yeah. before Moses goes back up the mountain and the golden calf all, uh, all happens. So this is before the golden calf, after the giving of the law. Exodus 24, we'll read verses 3 to 11. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. 
And he sent young young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel and there under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stones like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. So what's going on here in chapter 24 that we just read is the official covenant-making ceremony between God and the Israelites as mediated through Moses. Now remember, this uh, whole deal with Moses, it grows very naturally out of Abraham, but Moses expands the covenant, and so there is another covenant-making ceremony, and you see right in the center of it, is the law. The people twice in that section say, all that the Lord has required of us, we will do. Moses read all the book of the law. He read all of God's commands out. And then you have the uh, the people being sprinkled with the blood of the oxen. And that right there is the, um, the self-maledictory oath that we talk about with covenant making. That's what the people saying, if we fail to obey the law, if we fail to do all the Lord has commanded, then let our blood be shed. Let us bear the curse. So that's what's going on there in Exodus 23. There's an official covenant-making ceremony. The people swear an oath by their own blood that they will keep and uphold the law that their covenant Lord has presented to them. And remember, all the dynamics of the covenant, God imposes it, the people don't get to negotiate it, all the rest of it. So they enter into the covenant, um, and under the terms of the covenant, life and blessing depend on obedience to the law. And then if you turn over to Deuteronomy 29, Deuteronomy 29 is a um, renewal of the covenant. Now, with the next generation of Israelites who are getting ready to actually enter into the land. And so Deuteronomy 29, verses 10 through 29, Moses says, You are standing today, all of you, before the Lord your God, the heads of your tribes, your elders and your officers, all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and the sojourner who is in your camp, from the one who chops your wood to the one who draws your water, so that you may enter into the sworn covenant of the Lord your God, which the Lord your God is making with you today, that he may establish you today as his people, and that he may be your God, as he promised you, and as he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. It is not with you alone that I'm making this sworn covenant, but with whoever is standing here with us today before the Lord our God, and with whoever is not here with us today. You know how we lived in the land of Egypt and how we came through the midst of the nations through which you passed. And you have seen their detestable things, their idols of wood and stone and of silver and gold, which were among them. 
Beware, lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit, one who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man, and the curses written in this book will settle upon him, and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven, from all the tribe, and the Lord, I'm sorry, and the Lord will single him out from all the tribes of Israel for calamity in accordance with all the curses of the covenant written in the book of this law. And in the next generation, your children who rise up after you and the foreigner who comes from a far land will say, when they see the afflictions of the land and the sickness with which the Lord has made it sick, the whole land burned out with brimstone and salt, nothing sown and nothing growing, where no plant can sprout, an overthrow like that of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and wrath. All the nations will say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land? What caused the heat of this great anger? Then the people will say, It is because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt, and went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods whom they had not known and whom he had not allotted to them. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against this land, bringing upon it all the curses written in this book, and the Lord uprooted them from their land in the anger and fury and wrath, and cast them into another land as they are this day. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. <clears throat> so, In both of those passages, we see with the making of the covenant, the law is central. And that's the main thing I wanted you guys to get out of that, is that there is a heavy emphasis that if you're going to enjoy these blessings that I promised, then you must obey all that is written in the book of the law. And if you don't, then all these curses are going to come upon you and the world is going to look at you and say, what happened to this place? It's because they abandoned their God and they broke the covenant. So he lays out the curses for covenant unfaithfulness, for breaking of the law. So we see very clearly that um, the the law is central. It's necessary. And there's no, the, there's no lenience that we get here. It's strictly enforced. It is all the words of the book of this law. We want to think that, oh, it's, you know, if they tried hard to do it or, you know, mostly kept the law or kept the big laws, God says very clearly throughout, this is just two places, but you can go throughout Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It is all the law. But, of course, we know that God's law is so holy and is so uh, detailed and so all-encompassing for all of life, and it demands the whole of a person uh, it has such heavy demands that nobody is able to keep the law. Even if you don't have to turn there, but in Joshua chapter 24, once again, we have another covenant renewal ceremony, this time with the Israelites who had 
more or less conquered the land of Canaan, and now we're getting ready to settle there. So there's a covenant renewal, and Joshua says to the people in chapter 24, verse 19, he says, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. He said, Then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve, and his voice we will obey. So again, you see the once again with the covenant renewal, the law is central. But Joshua, the, the leader in Israel at that time, acknowledges and says plainly, You are not able to serve the Lord. He's a holy God. That God's God and his law are so holy that the people are incapable of actually holding up their end of the covenant. And we know this even all the way back uh, to Adam and Eve in the garden that because of the curse of God's covenant with Adam, because Adam sinned, and so everybody who Adam represented as federal head fell in Adam. So we are all, we, we all enter into this world cursed with a sinful nature, unable to keep God's law, broken from the very beginning. And so it is truly and literally uh, and impossible standard and even as we talked about last week the with the with the written law with the with god's moral law being transcribed from the conscience of his image bearers to actually being written in black and white uh as a definite clear law that served yes to you know teach the israelites how to walk before god and be blameless but it also served as a constant condemnation of them the external law was always there pressing down upon them condemning them for their disobedience and so it almost seems as if the mosaic covenant is cruel that god is holding out these blessings that he knows his people are never going to be able to attain because they're never going to be able to be obedient. Uh, they would you know, fail instantly. But you see sprinkled throughout the giving of the law, throughout you know, the, the five books of the law, um, we see God's grace threaded throughout because God does bring a solution to that impossible problem. God's law must be kept and it's perfectly holy. Man is completely incapable of keeping God's law. The solution that God gives is a way for the people to legally remain in the covenant and enjoy its blessings uh, in spite of their sinfulness. And that is um, by providing a way of atonement for their sin through the sacrificial system. Jesus. Absolutely. But before we get to Jesus, we got to start with what it means in itself right there. But it's true that like we always want to jump right to Jesus being the fulfillment. And he is. And we're going to get to that. But first and foremost, we need to understand what the sacrificial system is and what it does in its own context, literally, 
physically for the biological offspring of Abraham. And one of the first things to note is that the sacrificial system is a fundamental change in the way that Israel relates to God. Um, you know, there had been sacrifices to God as far back as Cain and Abel bringing their sacrifices and burnt offerings. We see Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob all making sacrifices to God. But what those were was uh, pretty much just a means of worshiping God. It was an acknowledgement of gratitude to God, of submission to God, and of reverencing, honoring, and worshiping him. The sacrificial system in Moses is something different. It did include those kinds of sacrifices, the free will offerings and the ascension offerings, and these different kinds of offerings that were essentially just a means of worshiping God and giving thanks to him. But it introduced a new kind of sacrifice that we hadn't seen before, which is the primary focus of the whole system, and that's the substitutionary atoning sacrifices. Um, and, and I mean, you have something of a precursor to this when God called Abraham to sacrifice Isaac and then provided the ram instead of Abraham. You have kind of a precursor of the, the idea of a substitute, but really it's not until you get to the sacrificial system that you have this you know, definite idea of, um, uh, of a person not being, uh, of their sins not being counted against them and instead of having another suffer and pay the price for their sins in their place. That the animals that were offered under the Mosaic system were a substitute. They died instead of the sinner. And it was only by means of this substitutionary atonement of the blood of another that Israel could actually even enjoy the blessings of the covenant without losing them right away because of their sin. You know, apart from the sacrifices, they would be disinherited immediately. But God provided this way where justice and wrath against their sin, um, you know, legal wrath under the under the covenant could be executed on another one. And God would accept that instead of the sinner. And so the the atoning sacrifices provided a you know, genuine legal basis for sinful Israelites to remain in the covenant. Does that make sense? And, you know, think of it, you know, we're thinking in terms of the old covenant specifically of the, you know, the physical offspring of Abraham, the physical blessings of the land, the presence of God and all of that, that when they, you know, when there was a breach of that law on the part of the people, they, there was a legal obligation for God to curse that instead of the sinner bearing the curse, the animal would bear the curse. God would accept that in their place. And this also goes right along with this whole idea that we talked about last week of Moses taking them to be a nation instead of just a people. With this written law, there is now a, a formal command to enjoy the blessings. It's not the you know, more vague command that he gave to Abraham, walk before me and be blameless. But now that is given formal expression, written in the Ten Commandments, and so it makes sense that 
this sacrificial system would be introduced at that time. Now that you have this written testimony where if somebody sins, you say, okay, we know you sinned. It's written down right here. You shall not steal. You stole. So, you know, according to the terms of the covenant, you need to be cast out. God provides this system uh, to restore and reconcile people under the terms of the covenant. And so, again... It's important for us to understand what it did literally and physically for Israel. Another significant element of the sacrificial system is it serves as the sign of the Mosaic Covenant. And you know, remember we've talked about the covenant signs and seals throughout this class. And typically, the sign of the covenant symbolizes usually both the blessing and the curse of the covenant. And so with the sacrifices and the sacrificial system, um, it's no different. So you have, remember, in Exodus 24, the formal covenant-making ceremony, the oxen were offered, the blood was sprinkled against the altar and against the people, and that served as the sign when the covenant was being ratified. And what it does, first of all, the, the sacrifices symbolize the threatened curse of the covenant, that if you don't obey the law, then you know it's your blood that will be spilled. It's you who's going to get cut off from the blessings. At the same time, this signified the blessing of the Mosaic covenant, which was that God would be gracious to accept a substitute in the place of the people, that God would uh, accept a substitute for their sins. So you have both of those in the sacrifices, the threatened curses and the promised blessing. So it also serves as the sign of the covenant with Moses, or through Moses, I should say. But so what actually then, you know, how did it work? You know, we, we talk about this is, you know, what it was made for, what it was intended for. I want you guys to turn over now to Leviticus chapter 5. Um, because again, you just, so that we don't kind of automatically jump to the end, we see, okay, this is how this worked for the people of Israel. This is the reason why God implemented it. This is what it accomplished, and this is what it was teaching them. There's a very simple example in Leviticus 5, verses 17 through 19. We read that if anyone sins, doing any of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, though he did not know it, then realizes his guilt, he should bear his iniquity. He shall bring the priest to the priest a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering, and the priest shall make atonement for him for the mistake that he made unintentionally, and he shall be forgiven." It is a guilt offering. He has indeed incurred guilt before the Lord. And so we're going to talk in a little bit about that, you know, unintentionally and did not know it kind of language that's in there. But again, just very simple concept. He sins. It says that he has incurred guilt from the Lord. So there is real covenant guilt, not just guilt in terms of ultimately standing before the judgment seat of God for, you know, your eternal state, but guilt in terms of the covenant that guaranteed them the land and the physical blessings. 
you know, we need to be thinking in those terms. That's the context of this into which this comes. So we need to start there. He's incurred real guilt concerning the terms of the old covenant. And so um, God's law is, you know, provides the means for that guilt to be covered. That he goes, he takes this animal, he brings it to the priest. The priest spills the blood of the animal and God accepts that and forgives the sinner and restores him to the blessings of the covenant. Again, very simple formula um, where there is a reconciliation between, um, or, or a reconciliation rather, of the sinner to the covenant blessings and the covenant arrangement with God. Don't think of this, you know, the, the sacrifices they really truly did the animal sacrifices when done in the right way with the right spirit they really did make the sinner not guilty under the terms of the old covenant before god ultimately in terms of being reconciled to god they did not justify they never were intended to uh, they didn't make one right before God, but they did declare someone as not guilty under the terms of the covenant. Does that make sense? Do you get that distinction? And that's going to be really important when we understand later on how the old covenant itself is a type that points to the new covenant in Christ. It's going to be important to understand, you know, the what Christ's sacrifice actually does for us, if we understand what the sacrifices actually did for the people. They were a sign that pointed forward to something better, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit, but they also really did accomplish something real for the people at that time. However, it was not automatic, and it wasn't just this formal um, ceremony that the people had to go through. It wasn't merely a ritual, a legal ritual or a formal obligation where somebody sins and he just takes a sacrifice and okay, I'm good. But from the very beginning, the sacrificial system was meant to, to restore those who were truly repentant that they actually acknowledged that they were guilty, that they weren't just going through the motions saying, well, I'm supposed to bring this offering, so I guess I will, but rather they truly acknowledged I'm guilty concerning the covenant of the Lord. I've broken his law, and I, you know, I want to be restored to the blessings. Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17. Um, again, David makes this very clear, a familiar, familiar passage. David says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So David understood it wasn't just a mere formal ritual. It wasn't just go bring your bull, make the offering, and you're good, but that God desired actual contrition, recognition that you were guilty, that you had done wrong, and that that needed to be dealt with, uh, a true conviction over sin. And then later on, in Isaiah chapter 1, you have God himself speaking to the people of Israel, or the people of Judah, rather, and 
you know, a very strong rebuke against them. He's warning them of judgment to come. And in Isaiah 1, verses 12 through 17, another pretty familiar passage, God says to the people, when you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even when you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. So what you have God saying there to his covenant people is that, you know, stop it with the offerings. He says that your offerings are an abomination to me, not because God hates the system that he's set up, but because the people were living in such a wicked and rebellious manner and were just going through the ceremonies and going through the motions of bringing the offerings, thinking that that was enough to restore them uh, under the covenant when God was saying, no, it, I don't want just these offerings Stop doing evil. Learn to do good. Do justice. Do what's right. Obey my law. Repent is what he's saying. Actually turn away from your sins and do what's right. Um, and so, you know, and again, eventually those uh, Israelites who God was addressing would be exiled. They would be, they would suffer the ultimate covenant curse being cut off from the land and from the blessings. And the expectation of the people actually having contrition for their sins and genuine repentance is assumed from the beginning. It's not like, well, you know, with Moses, it was all about the sacrifices. Then over time with David and later on, then you start getting these ideas of repentance. It's from the very beginning. Um, if you guys are still near Deuteronomy 29, we're going to look for a second at chapter 30. So immediately following those threatens of the cursings, that God would bring upon the people if they were unfaithful. Right after that, when he said, you know, you'll be cast out of the land, everyone's going to know you were unfaithful to the Lord. He then goes on in chapter 30, beginning in verse 1. He says, And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I've set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. He will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. So you have, once again, he says, if you disobey the law, these are the curses that are going to come. But if you recognize after you've suffered these curses and you're thrown out of the land and you recognize that you were truly guilty and you return and you serve the Lord and you obey me, then I'm going to restore your blessings. And again, that that 
recognition of being guilty and having done wrong, turning away and actually going and doing good, that is what repentance is. It is, it's not just, you know, oh, I guess I sinned, shouldn't have done that, but it's feeling the, the weight of the guilt of our sin, turning from it, and then seeking to walk in obedience. And that was, that spirit was necessary from the beginning for the sacrificial system. Um, even the, the language of Leviticus 5 that we read, you know, where, where it talks about if he sins unintentionally or, you know, um, you know, without knowing it, I don't think that it's feasible to read that as being somebody, you know, breaks God's law and steals and says, oh, I didn't realize I was against the law. I guess I should bring a sacrifice. Like, this was right after the whole law had been given in detail. The people were to live by this law, teach their children this law. The assumption was that they knew the law of God. So it's not talking about, oh, I didn't know that it was against the law to commit adultery. I guess I should, you know, make up for it. It's talking about those who, you know, as we would say, fall into sin or um, they commit sin, they give into temptation, and then they realize the guilt of what they've done, not as if they didn't know when they were doing it that they were being sinful, but they actually recognize the reality of the guilt of having broken God's law. Um, in contrast to a person who would take the sacrificial system as kind of a free pass to go and sin, somebody who in their heart premeditated and willfully says, well, I know that this is wrong. I know this is against God's law. I can always just bring my sacrifice afterwards. So I'm going to go ahead and sin. That's the difference. That's the sin. That is the spirit and the attitude that the sacrificial system was not meant to cover. That was the sin that the sacrifices would not atone for. The actual, you know, premeditated, yes, I'm going to sin because then I'll just bring my sacrifice. That's what the Israelites were doing in Isaiah chapter 1. They had no, they were careless to actually obey God's law, but they brought their sacrifices anyway, even though they just went on sinning. Um, so do you see the distinction there? And another reason, too, why the repentance is so necessary to maintain the blessing of the land is for, for what we talked about last week that the primary blessing of the Old Covenant, along with the land, is the presence of God in the land. And so to be restored to the covenant blessings meant that you actually wanted to be restored to God and to dwell in his presence, which means and assumes that you love his law and that you actually are desiring to obey his law and not just go and live sinfully. Does that make sense? That the people, they had to, um, you know, if they were going to offer their sacrifices with the right spirit, if they wanted the blessings of the covenant, that means that they wanted God, his presence, his law. And when people were just going through the motions and then going on sinning the way that they always did, that is not what um, the sacrifices were meant to cover. And so that... Um, presumption of God's grace 
treating the sacrifices as a free pass, so to speak, for sin. That's the kind of covenant unfaithfulness that leads to bearing the curse of the covenant. A couple examples of this. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 3. I told you guys we're going to be doing some flipping around tonight to look at some, you know, a bunch of different aspects of this. But there's two examples in the book of 1 Samuel that I want to look at, at this whole idea of presuming on God's grace, treating the sacrifices as just sort of a way to, you know, go on sinning and yet still remain blessed. And God does not go along with that. Um, so the first one, 1 Samuel chapter 3, this is uh, the high priest Eli. And he had these you know, two sons who were absolutely wicked serving in the temple. Um, they were you know, completely profane. They would take the best of the sacrifices the people were bringing to God. They were robbing God of what was his by right. They were sleeping with the women who were ministering outside of the tabernacle. And they were doing all of this um, on the watch of their father, Eli, who never exercised his proper office, either as their father or as the high priest, who was supposed to be guarding the holiness of God and ministering in that way. And so God finally declares that Eli and his sons are going to bear the curse of the covenant. They are going to be cut off. And if you look at 1 Samuel chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, God says, And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. And so this idea, because Eli and his sons knowingly were engaged in sin, and yet they were at the same time ministering in the tabernacle and actually participating in offering the sacrifices, but they were willfully breaking God's law. Eli did not take his son's sin seriously. They certainly didn't take their sin seriously. There was no fear of God or genuine contrition. And so God says, I'm going to cut them off, and there is no sacrifice that's going to atone for their sins. And then flip over to 1 Samuel chapter 15. This is an an ordeal with King Saul. And so Saul is probably the poster child of presuming on God's grace in the Old Testament. He, um, He, you know, God commanded him to go to wipe out this army and to completely devote this whole people and all their things to destruction, not to take any of the spoils. Um, Saul, of course, kept some of the spoils for himself, but he justified it and rationalized it by saying, but I made my offering to the Lord, right? So there's this idea where he goes, he does something that he knows God has commanded him not to do, and he says, but I'm going to offer my sacrifice after, and that's going to make it okay. But Samuel rebukes him in verses 22 and 23. Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is is as the sin of dim I'm sorry. 
For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. So there you have the covenant curse pronounced on Saul for his presumption on God's grace. He's cut off from the office of kingship. Eventually he's cut off entirely. His household is cut off. And so there's that whole idea that the sacrifices in and of themselves, yes, they were a legal means to be restored to the fellowship with God, but they needed, they, they required the um, contrition, a true recognition of sin, and not this flippant attitude towards sin. So do you guys see that? Does that make sense then? So the center point of the entire sacrificial system, the you know, the main aspect of it, or the you know, the highest aspect of it is is found in the annual day of atonement. So if you guys would turn to Leviticus 16, we're not gonna read it, but I'll be referencing a couple of verses in it. And I'm sure that you guys know the gist of the Day of Atonement, so I'm not going to spend a ton of time explaining it. But this was, first of all, you know, we talk about the idea of the, the covenant nation, that they, as a corporate nation, stood before God. And so as a nation, they were to be holy and obedient and submissive to God's law. And the Day of Atonement once a year was the time when the high priest would make an atoning substitutionary sacrifice on behalf of the entire corporate nation as a whole. Um, And so it was... It was intended to atone for all the sins of the people of Israel made by the high priest. And so if you look at chapter 16, verse 34, the very end of the chapter, um, it says that this shall be a statute forever, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in in the year because of all their sins. So this was an atonement for the people as a nation before God done by the high priest. And this is the only time of the year, again, I'm sure you guys know this, the only time that the high priest was permitted to go into the most holy place, that he was actually able to go into uh, the direct presence of God. And so what you have here is the high priest as a mediator or an arbitrator between the people who could not come into the presence of God or else they would be destroyed. And God could not come into the direct presence of the people without destroying them because of his holy wrath. And so you have this high priest as the representative of the people to God by bringing a sacrifice on behalf of all the people to God. And you have the high priest representing God to the people by declaring to the people by God's authority that their sins had been atoned for and that they were made righteous under the old covenant, not in the ultimate sense. Um, 
yes, that uh, Israel's legal right to the covenant blessing was maintained. And also what the Day of Atonement did is it, um, it gave a picture of the need for two distinct elements for, uh, for the people's for the people to remain in a righteous standing under the covenant. So on the Day of Atonement, you you had the one goat that served as the sacrifice for sins, where Aaron brought the goat before God, sacrificed it, sprinkled the blood on the Ark of the Covenant. And so that was the, the typical substitutionary atoning sacrifice. But on the Day of Atonement, there was... A second goat involved um, the scapegoat, as it's typically referred to. And so if you guys look at Leviticus 16, verses 20 through 22, we read that when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins, and he shall put on them and he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. So you have this second goat that you know the sins of the people was you know put on its head as it were, and instead of it being killed and its blood being shed it was driven out of the camp out to the outer darkness um never to be seen or heard from again and this indicated that it was necessary for both what we call propitiation and expiation to be made for sin propitiation speaks to the satisfaction of wrath that's the atoning sacrifice the substitute Expiation uh, speaks to the removal of sin. So not only is the sin, you know, paid for legally, but the sin is actually brought out of the camp, out of the presence of God, and it is never to be brought up, never to be, um, you know, held against the people. It's been paid in full and has been cast out. And so... Um, the scapegoat represented that, that the sin was both paid for and removed. And um, and also the whole Day of Atonement and the whole, uh, the whole of it, it also highlights that it's only, it really was only the atoning sacrifices that could satisfy both works and grace, that could satisfy both justice and mercy. And for the past few weeks, We've talked about with Abraham, with Moses, that you have in the Old Covenant both the elements of grace and of works. That God is going to give these blessings, but the people also must obey to enjoy the blessings. And in the sacrificial system, and especially in the Day of Atonement, you see both of those elements in place. That it really is these atoning sacrifices where the the disobedience must be paid for, guilt must be satisfied, wrath needs to be executed, and yet there is forgiveness because the 
Israelites themselves are not punished. A substitute is punished. So you have both the grace and the works. Um, now, all of this, does that make sense? That, you know, so you have both of those elements. And so all that we've talked about so far, like I've kept repeating tonight, has been in the context of the Old Covenant. The people are reconciled in terms of the Old Covenant blessings. Um, you know, the sacrifices that kept the people in the land, their offspring would continue, God's presence would be sustained, and all the rest. That's what the sacrificial system, when rightly practiced and understood, guaranteed for the people of Israel. But, like with all the rest of the Old Covenant, the sacrifices need to be considered on two levels. We talked about this with Abraham. Um, talked about this with Moses. You need to think of it on two levels. The literal, physical, immediate reality that it was accomplishing. And also what it pointed forward to. And in the sacrificial system, we really have the most significant unveiling of the mystery of Christ that we find in the entire Old Testament. Um, and so in it, yes, you have the Israelites given a legal means to stay in the covenant and all the rest. But also with the sacrificial system, there is a continual object lesson on how one is truly to be made right with God. And so I've mentioned this a few times. The sacrifices did not take away sin in the ultimate sense. Um, they were adequate to maintain their right to the temporal blessings of the Old Covenant, but they were insufficient to enable one to actually stand before God on the Judgment Day, to actually be declared not guilty in the court of heaven. They did not grant true forgiveness. They declared you not guilty in the court of Israel, but not in the court of heaven. Um And everything about uh, the sacrificial system was designed to teach the Old Covenant people that God would accept a substitute to restore them to the covenant and also to show the insufficiency of the sacrifices to actually make one righteous. Everything in there. It showed them, yes, God will accept this sacrifice to bring you, you know, to keep you in the covenant, but also... These are not making you righteous. It was intended to teach the people um, and, to, and to picture for them that there would be a true sacrifice, an ultimate sacrifice that God would provide and accept um, as a substitute to, I'm sorry, that um, it was designed to show the people that there was a, you know, that God was going to provide a true sacrifice to not only you know, reconcile them under the old covenant and keep them in the land and all the rest of it. Um, but actually they would truly be reconciled to God. And this was the object of true faith under the old covenant beyond just the legal requirements of the system, but true faith, true reconciliation to God was in seeing the sacrificial system, giving thanks for it and rejoicing in it for what it actually did literally right there in Israel, but also understanding that it 
anticipated something better and something more. And this was tied into the promise that God made to Abraham that all the nations would be blessed. And so you're starting to see, you know, this is like, you know, if you're putting together the mystery of Christ as a puzzle, this is like that, you know, big piece in the middle that actually starts to see, okay, you know, I kind of see what this is now. The sacrificial system does that in a major way. And so the people were to look forward with faith that, you know, these sacrifices didn't actually make you right with God. And, you know, the place where we need to go for this, of course, is the book of Hebrews. So please turn there. We're going to read um, a little bit at length from Hebrews because, I mean, and especially like verses, you know, we're going to be reading excerpts from verses or from chapters seven through ten, and those chapters is just a complete, you know, showcasing of how the sacrificial system was insufficient to truly reconcile people to God, um, and how it is fulfilled in Christ. And you know, of course, we're going to spend a lot more time when we actually get to the new covenant. But just so you guys see, you know, the pointing forwardness of it all. So we're going to read beginning in chapter 7, verse 23. And so we're told that this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now the point of what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. And then go down to chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled person with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. And then finally, uh, chapter 9, verses 24 through 28. 
For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So all of that, I know that's a lot, and in time we're going to get to all of that in much more detail. But I hope that even after the groundwork of what we laid tonight with the sacrificial system, you see how all of it, it was real and significant and important and gracious in its context, but also it was completely insufficient to actually make people right before God in itself. From the temporary nature of the priests to the repetitive nature of the sacrifice that they had to go in every year and every single day offering more sacrifices, um, even to the fact that the people were never allowed into the most holy place, that only the high priest was able to go in there only once a year, all of that testifies to the insufficiency of the sacrifices to actually make one right with God. But don't miss that at the same time, um, they were sufficient, as it says in chapter 9, verse 13 that we read, they were sufficient um, to to sanctify for the purification of the flesh. So, like I said, like I've been saying throughout, they actually had a, a real significant, sufficient purpose, that the sacrifice did sanctify people in terms of the Old Covenant, under that order, in order that they would stay in the land. It was sufficient to do that, to keep one in the Old Covenant, but they were not intended to actually reconcile one with God. They looked, they pointed forward to a fuller meaning, to a greater fulfillment, um, even though they never ceased to be meaningful in and of themselves. Remember, at the very beginning, we talked about types and how a type points to something greater than itself and different from itself, but the type is itself significant. It's not like the sacrifices were only significant significant because they pointed to Christ. They really did something real. And again, that's the, the whole key to typology and to understanding the connection of the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Old Covenant and the New, um, that the types are pictures which really do correspond to fulfillments in Christ, um, but the correspondence isn't always one-to-one. -one. It's not like every single aspect is fulfilled in the exact same way and manner as is in Christ. We're going to talk next week more about typology, and so hopefully we clear up some of that. Um, but the type and the fulfillment, they are like one another, but they're not the same as one another. That's important for us to remember. And so Jesus is the greater priest. 
that offers sacrifice. He's the true sacrifice that is a perfect substitute for sinners. Jesus is the true scapegoat that actually removes our sin from us. And he doesn't simply make us right in terms of physical promises, but truly before God. And he even brings us with himself into the most holy place. And so, again, the object of saving faith under the old covenant was the promise of this blessing. It was, you know, the the forward lookingness of the sacrifices that would, uh, you know, the, the true sacrifice that was to come. And that was a promise that would become more and more clear as revelation progressed until Christ finally brings it to full light. Um, do you guys have any questions or anything? I know that was kind of a heavier one tonight. All right. Well, let's pray. Father, we are so thankful to you, Lord, for just the glory of what you've done. Lord, we thank you that... You have offered a true and better and indeed a perfect sacrifice in our place, Lord God, that you have uh, made us righteous and declared us not guilty. Ultimately, Lord God, from the inside out, you have cleansed us. You have cleansed our consciences, Lord God, that you have made us right before your law. And so, Lord, by means of that, we can enter into the holy place. We can come before your throne. We have a perfect mediator in Jesus Christ, a perfect representative of you to us and a perfect representative of us to you. So, Lord, we thank you for this glorious reality. And Father, I pray that we would not take this for granted or um, you know, just let this be something like cold doctrine to us. But Father, I pray that you would allow this to fill us up with joy and reverence and true worship and rejoicing, Lord God, that you have drawn us to yourself. You have done what the you know sacrifices of bulls and goats could never do by sacrificing your only begotten son. And Lord, I thank you that this was your plan for the ages. And Lord, that our, our Savior will appear once more to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So Lord, I pray that we will be eagerly waiting for you by being busy about doing the work of your kingdom. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. 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 Next week, Lord willing, if work isn't too crazy, um, we're going to talk a lot about um, the typology of Moses and the Exodus. So we're actually looking at specific things in Moses that you know point forward to Christ and how they point forward. And then that'll be our last one until the spring. We'll pick it up with David. So that is the plan.